the occasion tonight. The occasion tonight is a haunted ceremony. <laughs> made real and unreal by the presence of his voice. The poem which we just heard. Yeah, let's, uh, okay, the, the poem which we just heard uh, at the front of his book, The Opening of the Field, uh, reads like and is a poem of initiation, of first permission, written after he was already well advanced into his life as a poet, reminding us that each re-entry into the art is also a first entry and an act of renewal. If he sought always that first permission for himself, he could also, through his poems and his presence, grant it to others. I first met Robert Duncan in 1959. San Francisco was and remained his city, but he was then living in Stinson Beach a short ways up the coast. We had been corresponding for maybe a year before that, although I was a dozen years younger and very little published. Ferlinghetti's City Lights was bringing out my first book, New Young German Poets, a book of translation. And that summer, Diane and I had come to San Francisco for the first time. We ran into him at the City Lights bookstore. There was a kind of photo session going on. And a few days later, Diane and I drove to Stinson Beach, picking up Robert, who was hitchhiking somewhere along the way. He was, at that rare moment, bearded as was Jess, and looked to my naive eye a little like the 40-year-old Whitman, and Jess then oddly looked to me like a youthful D.H. Lawrence. Uh, there was a feeling of enchantment about it all, themselves, their house and garden on the ocean, the books they read, the paintings and collages Jess was making, the grunion running that night along the shore, the meteorites that flashed through the night sky, and a meal, Diane reminds me, replete with sorrel and lemons and nasturtiums from their garden. I felt myself led by a kind of magic into a world suggested by his poems. It was, I now realize, a moment of change for me, even in some sense of transformation, to which those two were among the singular contributors. I had, like others, been wavering about my location as a person and a poet, uh, and Robert showed me in his own terms the possibility of relating to a vast and uncharted domain of poetry and something more. With an incredible lightness and cheerfulness, he announced himself as bookish and derivative, freeing those words suddenly from the academic bounds in which I then had placed them. He spoke impassionedly, for he was then most into it, of William Carlos Williams and of a poetic line determined by the breath. More singularly, he brought romance and gnosis back into a world of common things, emerging in David Anton's later somewhat derogatory terms of Anaheim and Disneyland. 
In exchange for Paul Ceylon, who I first gave him then, he led me into Gershom Sholem's vision of Kabbalah and the lore of the old Jews, and he sensed before anyone else, and least of all myself, that I would move in that direction. What he offered then and later, in spite of any shifting moods and weathers, was a generosity of spirit or, more immediately, a poetics of the spirit, even where the generosity might seem to falter. It was an acknowledgment of and an insistence on the spiritual and art, as Kandinsky might have known it, an inspired reminder of what art and poetry still could be and of a vision through Whitman and or Dante and or others of a totalizing universality that included and surpassed all separate individuals and species. All of this he spoke in what sometimes seemed like a language of pure parataxis, a leapfrogging speech that was constantly on the lookout for connections, like a rare form of collage brought into the world of conversation. If his rap included camp, as Jonathan Williams has elsewhere pointed out, that was good also and an essential part of who he was. But the language of the poems and essays was, above all, a noble and ennobling language, a stance that he was willing to project as few others among us. Often, I am permitted to return to a meadow as if it were a given property of the mind that certain bounds hold against chaos that is a place of first permission, everlasting omen of what is, an ennobling language and one striving at the same time through what he called courage in daily act to the creation of a new and natural measure. Robert Duncan was in the end a poet of enormous means and complexity, one of the last to essay a cosmological poetics to be the model of the poet as Michael Davidson described him, for whom all of reality can enter the poem. As such, he was, he made himself a man and poet open to multiple influences, accepting and announcing a sense of his own derivations that freed others to do the same. One has only to think of the remarkable lists of predecessors and contemporaries that filled his essays or, by collage and paraphrase, came into his poems. Quote, Ezra Pound, Gertrude Stein, Joyce, Virginia Woolf, Dorothy Richardson, Wallace Stevens, D.H. Lawrence, Edith Sitwell, Cocteau, Mallarmé, Marlowe, uh, St. John of the Cross, Yates, Jonathan Swift, Jack Spicer, Celine, Charles-Henri Ford, Rilke, Lorca, Kafka, Arp, Max Ernst, Saint-Jean-Pierce, uh, Prévert, Laura Riding, Apollinaire, Brecht, uh, Shakespeare, Ibsen, Strindberg, Joyce Carey, Mary Butts, Freud, Dali, Spencer, Stravinsky, William Carlos Williams, John Gay, and Higgledy Piggledy, Euripides and Gilbert, the Straw Hat Reviewers, Goethe of the Autobiography, he writes, I have never read Faust, although he did afterwards, and H.D. So goes one list of his 1953 essay, Pages from a Notebook, the same piece, in which he also tells us memorably, I make poetry as other men make war or make love or make states or revolutions to exercise my faculties at large. 
It is, the kind of, it is the kind of statement by which one knew and loved him, the kind of statement that placed him by its bravado and because the poetry itself had also proved it among the visionary company of which he knew he was a part. And that company could then be extended in every direction, noble and lowly, towards the greater symposium of the whole, of all orders of being, that he prophesied in his later rites of participation, and which he saw already forming in our time. He was then a, great, a poet, even a great poet, who created, like Whitman before him, his own life as a poet. Towards that creation, he was aware, and he made us aware, of the stages, the grand design by which a life like his might grow. His retreat from book publication, a 15-year hiatus that he announced in 1969, was an aspect of that, as was the prophecy for his later years, which he foretold as a delirious and creative senility and in which he was, alas, to be thwarted by several years of debilitating illness. The relative lack of critical response to Groundwork One before the war was also, I suppose, unforeseen to place him among those great poets whose own lifetimes were not sufficient to receive the acclaim that a posterity would give them. Yet that non-recognition itself became the occasion for an outpouring of devotion by dozens of outstanding poet contemporaries who joined together in creating for him a National Poetry Award for Groundwork One and for a Lifetime of Achievement. For one who thinks in terms of patterned lives, of grand designs, an artist's later work takes on a special meaning. With Robert Duncan, the final book of his lifetime, Groundwork Two in the Dark, is, we now can see, one of those culminating works. His creation of an Altenstiel marked not by a mere quiescence, but by ominous premonitions, confrontations with sickness and pain. He who had once thought himself the master of a charmed life for whom a mighty hand was always ready to appear, he told me once, to pluck him from disaster. So in a great dark section of the passages, poem called In Blood's Domain, the passages sequence, uh, he contemplates the death by illness of poets before him. The angel Syphilis in the circle of signatures looses its hosts to swarm, mounting the stem of being to the head. Baudelaire, Nietzsche, Swift are not eased into death, the undoing of mind's rule in the brain. And that same poem ends, what angel, what gift of the poem has brought into my body this sickness of living into the very gloria of life's theme and variations, my own counterpart of Baudelaire's terrible ennui. Groundwork too ends, for he lived to achieve it, with a single poem, or Bob Bertolf informs the almost single poem, written after the final illness struck his body, and with the contemplation also of the devastation it had already carried to his mind and spirit. He read it to us shortly after it was written, the hope implicit in it that he would be spared to write still more. He never did as if death's angel had to rebuke the beautiful optimism of his life and his desire to leave it intact. But the last time I saw him, a month before his death, 
with my wife Diane and Jess and Michael Palmer, the two hours at the bedside were mostly spent in laughing, joking, as if to show us that he had entered the outrageous, hilarious senility of his earlier prediction. And I thought, for my own part and likely not for his, that this was right, that on this occasion we could laugh death and God to scorn, that God and that death who are the same. I will conclude my own introductory words uh, by reading the end of, uh, well, no, actually, I'll, I'll read all of Duncan's uh, final poem uh, after a long illness, uh, after which we'll proceed in, uh, in alphabetical order, uh, recognizing that the alphabet is itself a charmed portion of our language and a key, therefore, to what we may make as ceremony. Uh, John Ashbery would have begun that, uh, you know, being a letter A, uh, you know, but is uh, at the last moment not able to be here. Um, uh, the poet, mm, mm, um, Robert Creeley, uh, uh, Susan Howe, Jackson McClough, and myself are present here uh, as, uh, as poets. Uh, Robert Bertoff is uh, Robert Duncan's literary executor. Uh, who's currently working towards the publication of a seven-volume, right? seven-volume collected works from the University of California Press, uh, and uh, Peter Glasgow is the uh, editor in uh, in chief of uh, uh, New Directions, uh, and the translator, among other things, of poetry from English into Anglo-Saxon. Uh, and at the end, at the end, we'll listen uh, to Robert's voice again. Uh, in a series of readings selected by Robert Bertoff. After a long illness, no faculty not ill at ease lets us begin where I must. From the failure of systems, breathless heart and lungs waterlocked, clogged with light chains, the kidneys, Condition is terminal life, the light and the heavy, the light and dark. It has always been close upon a particular death, undisclosed. What's behind? Seeing, feeling, tasting, smelling, that cloud. For two years, bitterness pervaded. In the physical body, the high blood pressure, the accumulation of toxins, the breakdown of ratios. In the psyche, stewed in its own juices, the eruption of hatreds, the prayer. I didn't have a prayer. Your care alone kept my love clear. I will be there again. The ways must become crossed. And again, dark passages, dangerous straits. My death attended me, and I knew I was not going to die. Nursed me through. Life took hold. What I ate, I threw up and crawled through as if, I tur as if turned inside out. Every thought I had I saw sicken me secretly in the dark, the filters of my kidneys petrified, and my death rearranged the date he has with me. Yes, I was afraid of not seeing you again, of being taken away, not of dying. The specter I have long known as my death is the lord of a passage that unites us, but of never having come to you, that other specter of my actual living is adamant. I have given you a cat in the dark, 
the voice said, everything changed in what has always been there at work in the ground. The two titles before the war and now in the dark, underwrite the grand design, the magic has always been there, the magnetic purr run over me, the feel as of cat's fur charging the refusal to feel that black stone now I see has its electric familiar. In the real, I have always known myself in this realm where no wind stirs, no night turns in turn today, the pool of the motionless water, the absolute stillness. In the world, death after death, in this realm, no last thrall of life stirs. The imagination alone knows this condition as if this were before the war, before what is in the dark, this state that knows nor sleep, nor waking, nor dream, an eternal arrest. There's been a, a recent film made about Robert Creeley by uh, Bruce Jackson and Diane Christian called Creeley, which is quite spectacular, and I urge you to see it w when it comes around your way. Uh, <laughs> at your local theater. <laughs> Starring Robert Greeley and Ed Dorn. <laughs> um, uh, there's a last scene in which uh, Bob says, um, well, I was only in it for the community. And that really struck home when I heard it the first time. It's a concept that's been an idea that's been uh, very much in the front of my mind from reading Robert Duncan and paying attention to him and to Creeley uh, and to Olson and to Dorn, et cetera. But the idea of a poetic community in this group of people uh, then became perfectly clear to me, or so I thought. And uh, that's what I'd like to talk about, about a little bit tonight. It was It's obvious that Duncan, uh, created a, or made or found a group of people wherever he went. Early on, he had a group of people by the, that he lived with in Woodstock by the name of Sanders Russell and Jack Johnson, um, who were associated in one sense with the Anais Nin people and Virginia Admiral and then Robert De Niro and Kenneth Patchen. When he went back to, to California, he cultivated a group of people who had come out of the Waldport detention camps for COs, which included uh, Bob Brown and William Everson. And then he went down to Healdsburg and joined these people with Ham and Mary Tyler and Ariel and Thomas Parkinson, people that you might know too. In the middle 50s, he had uh, a, he made up a group of people who uh, performed marvelous plays and got, uh, dressed themselves up and had a marvelous time once a month called The Maidens, and these included Helen Adam, and Eve Treen, and James Broughton, and Madeline Gleason. But it was the, the association with Charles Olson, and then Robert Creeley and Denise Levertov, which became the formative group, and I'll get around to that. He said in, 1950, in 1982, in a poetry reading in which he read all the way through the book of, the group of poems called The Regulators, which is in groundwork too, he said, for years I have written of myself being a derivative poet, having no identity in myself, having an identity in the community. And I have acknowledged and known that it is some kind of illusion of the artist 
that the individual's poem, individual poem is given and carried not in the form it, it, in itself because it is a secret real form that is not in itself but in poetry at large. My keenest interest would be in the whole life of poetry. Early on, uh, Duncan, uh, in 1951, Duncan started living with Jess and they remained life companions with a life effort. And that household became a paradigm of a sense of community. In 1966, he wrote, the household Jess and I have made, I have seen as a lone holding in an alien forest world, as a campfire about which we gathered in an era of cold and dark, a made up thing in which participating we have had the medium of a life together. And you remember in the, in the first passages poem, which is on this tape, that the, the hordes out of Central Asia gather around the, the campfire, and it's the, the campfire, the hearth, which becomes the, Im, the, the symbol of the center of the household as a domestic fact in a cosmic reality. This was, he was writing about in this passage about the Book of Resemblances, a book in which he sought to find <coughs> the resemblances between Robert Graves's postulation in The White Goddess and his own domestic world. Uh, this, this household that he sketches out had a different dimension. The imagination of this cosmos is as, as immediate to me, he wrote, as the imagination of my household or myself. For I have taken my being in what I know of the sun and of the magnitude of the cosmos, as I have taken my being in what I know of domestic things. It's always been a great comfort to me that Duncan could integrate uh, the recipes of his cooking immediately into his poems. And I'm thinking uh, now of the feast, which has uh, uh, the butcher had prepared a leg of lamb, which is the uh, uh, recipe for herb and mustard uh, paste for roast lamb from Julia Childs, volume one. And if you follow it through for the first part of the recipe, it's okay and then it falters, it doesn't follow anymore, but if you get the bottle of pick a pepper sauce and follow the ingredients around the label, he's copying them right off the label. So he's, it was, and the immediacy of what he's doing went immediately into the, the cosmic reality of the poems. This was early on, he wrote a series <coughs> of poems called Domestic Scenes and then Medieval Scenes, which contains, this was a little group that contained, this is now Robin Blazer and Jack Spicer, in Berkeley, California, 1949. The magic and convolutions of our company winks its lights. Its touch is slight and vital, but we are bearish magickers, makers of lightning and half sleep of fury storm. Out of this, out of this uh, situation, which contained, in a Blakeian sense, the necessary contra contrary, that is to say that every situation he conceived of as having an opposing force working against the, the central direction of what was going on. He wrote in a conflict with Robin Blazer over translations of Nerval in 1966. The basic misunderstanding between Blazer and myself here, dramatically contrasted, seems to arise between his poetics in which the poem is to be authentic, i.e. an expression of what he really what is really his own. The authority of his poetry must be first hand, and the criterion of its reality 
is that it is actually his. In my poetics, in which the poem is thought of as a process of participating in a reality larger than my own, the reality of man's experience in terms of language and literature, a community of meanings and forms in which my world would be at once derivative and creative. So I have taken Blake's The Authors Are In, are in Eternity as my guide. Blazer, as an artist, aims at signature or style. I aim at meaning, both in form and in content. But meaning here for me is not in what I am, but in what the language means. I do not express meanings that are, our, that are my own. I work in meanings which I receive or find in research. Talking about this same period later, in 1974 he wrote in another uh, a broadside called Memoirs of Our Time and Place, thinking about that earlier time in Berkeley and San Francisco. And it was in the context of that audience and of the powerful recognition of a community of poets beyond the groups of movements within the community in a context that, that is, that instigated by the first venture of 1947, that an all-important change took place in the re relation of the poem to the audience. His relationships were not only to his contemporaries, but to his sense of literary history. That he, like Pound, took the authors to be an eternity, but the authors were uh, contemporaneous and alive in his household. He wrote in the HD book in 1969, what was, the, was published in 1969, my sense is that we are coming from what we once once we thought of as national tradition, German or English, or church orthodoxies of belief and doctrines of progressive views into something else. A community of meanings where we, where we were to inherit a thread of being in which works of the imagination of what man is, a thread of being in which there are many strands, a psyche will be formed having roots in all the old cultures, and this, it seems to me, to be one of the truths I own most to Charles Olson's poetry. The old roots will stir again. But this sense of impending inheritance is of the thought itself. For long before us in the 19th century, Carlisle, Emerson, George MacDonald, too, had their thoughts in Nervalis, Teak, Hoffman, as we do now. This also leads to the, the summary statement of the dynamic antecedents of his life. These poems were, me were many persons from many times and many places begin to reappear, as in the Cantos, the Wasteland, Finnegan's Wake, the War Trilogy, and Patterson are poems of a world mind in process. He also wrote later on in a stunning essay uh, called Man's Fulfillment in Order and Strife, which is collected in Fictive Certainties. For in writing I came to be concerned not with poems in themselves, but with the life of poems as part of the evolving and continuing work of a poetry I could never complete. A poetry that had begun long before I was born and extended beyond my own work in it. He, for example, declined to write a preface to Madeline Gleason's selected poems. 
Annalisa was an old, old friend and dear to him, but he determined that she was not participating in the poem that he wanted to write, and therefore could not participate in writing a, a preface for her. In the same way, in like manner, the letters to Donald Allen and, and also simultaneously to Charles Olson in the formation of the New, New American Poetry were insistent that the New American Poetry as an anthology present a community of poets and not a group of sectarian and private interests. It was the community of poets and a statement of unanimity in an activity of poetry that he most wanted. The view of the life of the imagination creating a place in the large life of the language and the terms of poetry was con con continuously consistent. He, often, he wrote several times that he thought of this as his Kabbalistic chariot having four wheels. The wheels changed often, but one favorite one that repeated was Pound, D.H. Lawrence, H.D., and Joyce. But the most important group was of Robert Creeley, Denise Levertov, and Charles Olson. In, in 1956, he wrote, after meeting Denise Levertov for the, for the first time, but speech is solitary, and since finding companions at this time and not an eternity, the language becomes a conversation, a discourse, not a speech. I go from your poetry to mine to Bob's as I go to poetry at large as a continuum of discourse, original in that it stirs the origin, that language is always coming into being of something. And late, again, he said, for me, the joy of Charles Olson or Robert Creeley or Denise Levertov is the joy of the work and its visibility, which we call the work. Old Whitman would call us companions. There was, as been said, a determination that uh, he would not publish a book until 1984, and he announced that publicly. In a letter, he makes this seemingly marvelous statement, but um, it's a major statement that, that I'm still trying to work out. Is it, this is what he says. My announcement to New Directions first and then to the, f in the front of Caesar's Gates to my reading, my readers, that I would not issue a new book of poems, i.e. a work past the bending of the bow until 1983, was not arbitrary but came from a life sense of what has happened in my work. I do not relate my work to the contemporary. Indeed, after the death of Charles Olson, I view my participation in the initiation of history to be concluded. What I would initiate in poetry is an event of another order. What happened is 1968 is that there's a major break with Denise Levertov, and the Vietnamese War is crashing in on his reality. Uh, so he stopped and pulled back. But I would want to me to read uh, one final statement, which uh, from May 1966, which is in the heat of the war, that uh, deter that seems like it's a determinate statement to me of Duncan's persistent claim of recreating himself in creating the language and being alive in a sense of co the community of language and of people working for the common good of a kind of poetry. By, by, by imagination, we give the universe a place to exist in itself so that even the war is re reawakened in our inner reality and rep rep reciprocally, the imagined as it comes 
as it becomes self, seeks return to be realized, a symbiosis in which matter and spirit participate and give rise to a perpetually self-creating world and world-creating person, a unity of realities. The image comes to the artist to recreate him and is charged then with the numinous aura, the demonic import of the creative. This is one operation in the work of art of the poet or the painter. Yet in the same work, the artist projects more than the image, the form of actualization, illustrating the universe anew with the signature in part of his person, in part of his experience. And I think this is what he meant by the whole life of poetry. Thank you. Momently, I would like to read a brief note in respect of Robert Duncan. But being here in New York and thinking of those times when we would see each other here, um, something has to be curiously emphasized is that Duncan was uh, exceptionally real and vivid, <laughs> articulate uh, person, by which I mean he would take to the night as a, as a swimmer, entering upon the gorgeousness <laughs> of possibility and desire. <laughs> I mean, you could see him glittering in the doorway saying later, you know, um, so that one can not presume upon him to have been simply this almost pious, not that Bob had so identified him, but this pious intent. Uh, he was an extraordinarily vivid and, and various man. He was consummately American in, in, in a curiously old-fashioned sense. Not quite like Williams, but in the last few days I've been thinking a lot about Paul Salan, which, which, whom Jerry had mentioned, like a consummate European poet of that intense dilemma. Uh, Duncan is equally the, is really the American equivalent, uh, who finds no easy, easy translation. It's curious, like e.g., that Ceylon is translating Frost and Marion Moore and Wallace Stevens and Jean Dev and Rilke, et cetera, et cetera, uh, trying to find the locus of, of of an imaginable world. And Duncan, to me, seems the great, the great, uh, the great articulation of that of that possibility. But he, got, he was young, like even all of us, and he gets old, and this and that happens to him. And he, uh, I remember he used to tell me in New York when he was first here as a charming, attractive kid, uh, he was trying to hustle people for, you know, evening's rest. And if he didn't make it with a, a visiting kinetic businessman for the evening, uh, he would he had a very simple device, which I recommend to all of you, <laughs> is wait till about three or four in the morning, late returning persons, uh, hit door of apartment, house, go in, you sidle in back of them, and you go right to the top of the building, and you can sleep <laughs> veritably for free in the warmth and actual solitude of that place. In other words, I'm trying to emphasize that Robert was, uh, was real, that's all. He led a real life. Anyhow, now I'll read my pious <laughs> eulogy. Wisdom as such, in respect of Robert Duncan. Much as if one had stumbled upon an immense simplification of difficulties or a sudden opening of seemingly blocked way, Duncan's instance and reflection were always of great use to me. This is like young man sets forth, you know. Duncan's instance and reflection were always of great use to me. 
When I felt secure in my own conduct, I would at times patronize his larger view, his boredom with the immediate demands of my own intimate associations, as, for one, life then in Bellinus, with all its instantly exercised freedoms. I can't now recall his having come out more than once or twice in the five years I lived there, but he was hardly above the daily or the topical. In fact, it was there he specifically located as a poem such as Santa Cruz Propositions or Alternative in its Intimate Preoccupation, the quotidian makes very, make very clear. It is the web of articulate associations, the resonances, the apprehensions that define the human and all the world leaning in that he made so sounding a rhyme. I think of various of his essays, Poetry Before Language, notes on poetics regarding Olson's Maximus, or most determining here, towards an open universe with its quotation of Carlyle ending, see deep enough and you see musically, the heart of nature being everywhere music if you can only reach it. His death on February 3rd of this year was anticipated, simply that the nature of his illness and the battering of its effects gave no grounds for some prospect of recovery. No one ever looked at things, as one says, with a colder eye than Robert. It was hardly a fact of being objective, but rather that he loathed the pretensions either of euphemisms or of ignorance. He wanted to know what was happening. One thinks of pounds, we must understand what is happening in the Venice poem for the factual value of that information and by reason of its being one's own life to live and to die in. That cannot be done by proxy or convenient absence that life was all the time was one of Robert's emphases. And so when he first had to deal with dialysis, I'm told, he would go through the process while teaching, this kind of terrific, this is Robert's style. Uh, he would go through the process while teaching, the students thus witnessed to his very real life and how to deal with dialysis as and if. But far more, far, but really far more to the specificness of all such life to literal body. The poems of Groundwork 2 in the dark again and again are this articulate emphasis, quote, in the physical body, unquote. Wisdom as such comes from the title of a piece of Olson's years ago, Against Wisdom as Such, a curious fear in some sense that Charles had concerning Robert's predilection towards lore, call it, or what Charles in that note characterizes as oh hi, that is his imagination of Southern California's appetite for mystic cults, or so a New Englander would think. Possibly it was even some tacit competition that prompted Charles, but in any case, the qualification stuck in Robert's mind long after it had shifted in Charles's for whom Robert became an unequivocal master of the art. These two are an intensive congruence, I feel, a place in our art wherein an extraordinary range of potential and instance gain locus so that either reads or writes beyond the habituated boundaries of contemporary conventions of whatever kind and yet are not apart or isolated or simply sports of singular potentials. Robert is especially common of a many in his imagination and practice of community and as he writes of Whitman, so one may say of him, the poet who exists close on the vital universe 
then exists close on his self. All the events of human experience come as words of the poem of poems. The confidence stays with him. It is characteristic that in thinking of Robert, one thinks of more and more and more. I loved his wisdom. It was like having a very humanly blessed and absolute source of information always at hand that could somehow feel the most various range of concerns. It was he, for example, who first gave me active sense of Jack Kerouac's writing in Mallorca, gave me active introduction to Zukovsky in HD, who once helped me tape a sequence of records to give me some grounding in music of this century, and so on to matters far from the arts. I was fascinated by his use of information coming from linguistics back in the 50s, and he must have known well before I did that Traeger and Smith were at Buffalo. Last time I saw Jess and Robert in August, they talked of an article they'd read in Scientific American concerning dyslexia and of how the distance, call it, from the sign to the sounding, the abstraction so affected, intensified the brain's dysfunction in this circumstance so Chinese speakers had far less of a problem in the use of that language than did English speakers or others of this Western world. What a charming echo of Pound and Faliosa. But it was Robert's wisdom as such that is finally the point here, the literal wisdom of his life and art. In a letter dated February 8th, Duncan McNaughton writes, I think of Whitman and of Olson as being conspicuously American creatures with commensurate mystery of their genius, their immense and mysterious coherence of mind, as mind was finally the agent of and the outcome of their achievement. But Duncan, as Olson repeatedly noted, was another sort of American wonder. The purest and oldest thing we know is poet, the living lore of it. That lore had gathered in Duncan as in no other American I know of, not even Zukovsky, I think. I think Yeats was something like that too, that tremendous capacity to inherit the lore of the poem and to apply it. But it's the American mind of Duncan that seems to me to kick it outside the setup. No more elegant blend of elements than, than R.D. As Duncan writes, there is truly no direction, no center to the center. Our sounding goes as we go out, no circumference to the circumference, perilous then, time and space as we reckon. We but follow a reckoning in measure. Wait a minute now. There is truly no direction, no center to the, to the center. Our sounding goes out as we go out. No circumference to the, the circumference. Perilous then, time and space as we reckon. We but follow a beckoning in measure, haunted without actually performing any true computation at all that one so lives in the world without relief, that we are only the lives given us to live, that there is no measure save in the community we constitute and must learn to admit awry contractions of my own, given the ample disposition of what Robert both recognized and proposed as human. Most to be remembered is that with, quote, with Dante, I take the literal, the actual, as the primary ground. We ourselves are literal, actual beings. This is the hardest ground for us to know, for we are of it, not outside observing, but inside experiencing, unquote. So it is then in memory, in fact, 
quote, wisdom as such must wonder, for sortilege is all. Throughout, the magic-loving tongue speaks and tastes, thunder, the radiance of the sun upon the leaf. And among the poet's chimeras, chimeras of an afternoon, the moth's ephemeral existence, take key in mystery, translates what the event courses direct comes from to volunteer, ita misa est, my life when's done, the feast I offer you, plunder my, act, my excess. But what sweet and true I've meant to be the office, the vowels in sequence, time's offering, the trumpet voluntary imitates the soul's release, wills not forced nor reaches, but upon the air's promise frees itself entirely what we see, taste, hear, balance, and let go from balancing, here to pace, feel the presence of its scent, the fearful transport in every sense we know is given. We come to ourselves, wherein, as if recovering, we are born by the virtue of this thing. Robert Duncan uh, was one of the world's greatest talkers. Talking was his gift, as was listening. His ear for the music inherent and even the plainest seeming of words was incredibly fine-tuned. Talking and listening, the, t the totality of speech, are the ground of his poetry and worldview. In writing, he once said, to quote again that key statement that Robert Bertolf read earlier. In writing, I came to be concerned not with poems in themselves, but with a life of poems as part of the evolving and continuing work of a poetry I could never complete, a poetry that had begun long before I was born and extended beyond my own work <clears throat> in it. I first met Robert 12 or 13 years ago. It was an unseasonably warm and humid day in May, and I was going, going over some work with another of the world's great talkers, uh, David Anton. There was a lull in the general office clatter, and suddenly David looked up and said in a stage voice, is that Robert I hear? And from the distance came an echoing, is that David I hear? Robert had been in with, with uh, Jay Lachlan. Now the four of us stood purposeless in the corridor. And since it was past noon, we all decided to go out for lunch. This was in the old New Directions office down at 3336 Avenue on the corner of 4th Street in that building that looks very much like the Flatiron a little farther uptown. Uh, we were on the second to the top floor. And above us was a sweatshop manufacturer of women's hats. Between uh, two upper floors, and it was nearly an hour before we were rescued through a side panel and transferred to the working freight elevator. 
uh, as the air got closer and closer and the temperature rose, Jay became very quiet, swaying in the corner with a noble but very faint smile. Uh, the women sank to the floor one by one, sobbing. I grew morose. And all the while, Robert and David talked with increasing intensity and volume. <laughs> One of the things they talked about was silence, uh, the withholding of talk. Both these poets, for all their effusiveness, had always been ext extremely discreet in matters of publication. Uh, Robert, of course, was in the middle of his 15-year silence, which, which wasn't to end until 1984, with the publication of the first of the groundwork sequence before the war. So Andy felt fortunate <coughs> uh, that he had just agreed to allow two of his passages to appear in the next annual. Teasers, you might call them. Robert, on another less fraught occasion, told me that he was very much aware of the tensions building up around the publication of Groundwork. On one level, he said, it was all a wonderful game in the grand movement of poetry with himself as prima mobile. <laughs> uh, while the young Haitian women on the floor moaned in terror, Robert and David continued their free-form talk, moving from the subject of silence to improvisation. That is the poetics of oral poetry. And as we were being handed out through the side panel and helped across the cables, I heard them agree that Milton, along with Homer, was surely the supreme oral poet of all time. Uh, that was my introduction to Robert Duncan, the talker. And I must admit that it affected my subsequent dealings with Robert Duncan, the author. Robert was good to work with. Once a project was fully underway, he, he was always prompt and thorough, not at all a complicator, and ever respectful of an editor's manifold task. But as any editor can tell you, one has to stand in balance with one's authors. And in my case, <laughs> with regard to Robert, I admit to feeling at times a certain awe to be working with a writer whom I took to be the finest lyric poet in English of his generation. Uh, a book of his at times came to seem less a New Directions book and more of a book for Robert Duncan. In the case of Groundwork in the Dark, his last collection, th this feeling was very deep since Robert's health was failing badly and there was an aura of mortality about the poems, though I should add not at all of morbidity. When I flew out to San Francisco at the end of last year to attend the MLA conference there, it was with relief that I carried with me two handbound copies of the book, which was delayed at the bindery because of its odd size. Uh, Robert Bertolf, who had been taking care of all literary matters for Robert Duncan for the past couple of years, brought him in the dark, and it is some consolation that he, he was perfectly, wonderfully pleased with it. Uh, the last time I spent an, an, any length of time alone with Robert was in the summer of 1984 in San Francisco. 
Michael McClure drove me over to Robert's house, then dropped us off at an Italian restaurant nearby for lunch. Uh, Michael couldn't stay, but he'd been coming by weekly, taking Robert for walks in the Arboretum in Golden Gate Park. Robert was just then out of the hospital and was very frail. He leaned on me for support the whole half-mile walk back to his house on 20th Street. And he had to pause after every step on the steep front stairs. But he never stopped talking about the next volume of Groundwork, the one published just this year, uh, about his prose collection, Fictive Certainties, about other collective volumes of his work that incidentally New Directions and the University of California Press will now share in publishing over the next several years. And he talked poetics. I was translating Catullus at that time. And I mentioned to him that something I couldn't pin down had gone wrong with my lines. Gaius Filarius Catullus was coming out sounding like Lawrence Ferlinghetti. <laughs> Uh, I hadn't brought my translations with me, but Robert solved the problem nevertheless. He launched into a long, brilliant disquisition on enjambment and the controversy over its proper use, beginning with Boileau's L'Arc Poétique of 1674. He suggested that one way of defining poets is by the nature of their line, whether it is essentially a statement or breath line or whether it enjams. Uh, I've come to see this distinction as crucial to the, to the successful translation of poetry, more important than such formal word-binding techniques as rhyme or set meter, whose effects are not easily carried from one language to another without distortion of meaning. Robert, of course, taught poetics on the graduate level at the New College of California in San Francisco. His approach to the subject, as to his own poetry, and also his linguistic philosophy was relativist after Sapir and Worf, as well as diachronic, but also paradoxically universal. The morphology of forms, he wrote, in evolving does not destroy the historicity but reveals that each event has its origin in the origin of all events. Or again, quote, the materials of the poem, the vowels and consonants, are already structured in their resonance. We have only to listen and to cooperate with the music we hear. The storehouse of human experience in words is resonant too and we have but to listen to the reverberations of our first thought in the reservoir of communal meanings to strike such depths as touch upon the center of man's nature. A few years ago, I published a collection of modernist American poems in what I call back translations, that is, into Old English. Robert enjoyed these attempts, I think because they fell conceptually within his universe of the never-ending poem. A few days before he died, I sent him a copy of a new limited edition of four of these translations that included the old English version of Often I Am Permitted to Return to a Meadow, which we heard Robert recite on tape a little earlier. 
In old English, the mythic wonderment of childhood, the poem embodies, resonates against the childhood, if you will, of recorded language. Uh, Robert never heard me read, read this translation aloud, and the limited edition I sent to him arrived too late for him to see, and so I would like to recite the poem now in its old English version while he is in some way with us here. Oft ich mot efcherent o sum remedwe, swahewera wavong makod mit moda, finismin bote is makod sto, theismin hea iswaner to their hartan, eche edish, felden and elem yefochta, swathat there is hell therein, thehis makod sto. Sharpen mit leachter, what on the shadwa fersen hu fairlath. What on fairlath, erla ye timrunga ich am, ich seja sin ye leech nessa, of them erst in leava, thus the blostmas in leagas in leechted to their atlaftian. Heo selvo bith quen under thein hula. Saratha yadruchta sin drevung of wardom in unwardom, the es feld feldan. It is evna swaven of them grass blown den east, to yeena serasunden from stoa andra tide, eras serasun nither stia. Thus the dieel nessa we saith on childre gamana of ringa um the rosen teald. Oft ich mot efcheren to sum remedwa, swahia vera stadolecht of them moda, the fast America heldath with dwolman. Se isto of eristen leava, eche word token of them the is. I, I only uh, came to know uh, Robert Duncan quite late in his life, but um, for me, he'd always been what Bob Creeley said. I, I just, I thought he was just the un-American poet. He was just trying to to do with America. I would have just had to invent him if he hadn't been there, and that's all I can say. Um, but um, it was just miraculous the way I actually connected with him because uh, with the talk of his book published, his books published by New Directions, I was just the opposite extreme. I, I, had, I mimeoed uh, myself with Maureen Owen a, a book called The Liberties um, about eight years ago. I can't even remember the date, but it's just a message to all you out there who, you know, for mimeo. <laughs> 
that I, I mimeoed this, this thing that I would worked on for a long time, and um, we, we both did it together over uh, at the Poetry Project. And I mailed it out, and a friend showed it to, to, to Robert Duncan. And, and he, he liked it, and he got me out to California, and, and we were just friends from that point on. And, and it was just, that was just, that's a miracle to me. I mean, it's just a miracle. And uh, so after, after we connected in that way, which is just to me a sign of, I mean, some extraordinary generosity because, I mean, this man was just like God who had so suddenly read my book. Um, I, I, I became, he couldn't have been nicer and I became, he made me just feel like I was part of his family in, in, in the way Bob mentioned. And um, anyway, I, I, I want to read something I prepared. But I'd also like to say, beyond being an American poet, that I found when I got to know him um, that he's a very Irish poet. <laughs> and I mean, I, I never, my mother, my mother is Irish, and, and um, he just had read all the books that I had read as a child that my mother, that I'd grown up on. And he just, he knew Yeats and he knew Joyce in the way Irish people know him, know them. So it was just amazing um, that quality about him. Okay, so I, I wrote this piece. The, uh, this is from uh, Groundwork uh, One before the war. Oh, my better glasses. Circulations of the song. Then he is range. This winter, I've been in Buffalo teaching a graduate seminar at the university. I've been living in a house in Fort Erie, Canada, on the shore of Lake Erie. I spent the first years of my life in Buffalo, but never returned except for one night when I gave a reading until this January. Now the old history comes back to me, a history outside time where first memories form. That other history, beyond what we ever were, where we no longer are. The history that always interested Robert Duncan. I lost my father in Buffalo. He enlisted in the army just after Pearl Harbor was attacked and was stationed in Europe until World War II was over. When he left, we moved somewhere else. When he came back, he was a stranger. We thought he was the postman delivering a letter. My husband was an Air Force pilot in the same war. That was a long time ago. Of course, I didn't know him then. Forty-five years later, he has cancer, and I have come back alone to this place, which for me will go on infinitely signifying risk. A severe handwritten law stands original and sacred here, where we can do nothing. Robert Duncan believed in connections between apparently unconnected people, places, and events. Maybe he could have explained why, for me, Lake Erie is an allegory of elemental irrationality. In Groundwork One, 
Before the war, passages 35, before the judgment, he writes, and I was immersed into the depths of the water, let down by that man who stood for my father, into the element before intention, cast into the flood, drowned in the rage of the mother of what is. I am speaking now of the dream in which America sleeps, the new world, moaning, floundering, in 300 years of invasions, our own history, out of Europe and enslaved Africa. Tears stream out to feed the deeps below from the eyes in which the spirits of America's yearning come and go, broken, reassembling, enduring, defeated. From Groundwork 2, In the Dark, illustrative lines. The forehead leans forward against its dark wave. What works in me is not mine, but ancient survivals. Child not of our father, but of the abyss where he was. In the fires of that mine, love comes to grief to strike a light again. Most afternoons before it gets dark, I go out for a walk on the beach. Even in late April, I need a winter coat. All the buildings facing the water are still shut, many boarded up against the elements. Weather on the Canadian side of Lake Erie is nasty this time of year. It would be desolating but for flocks of wild ducks and wild geese returning or flying away again as ice melts. They thrive on cold and have brilliant cold colors and calls. During January and February, everything outside seemed to have a soul locked in. Peaks and ridges of ice slouched on the lake. There was no open water in sight. Sometimes I thought I heard cries in the north wind, older and bitterly unfamiliar. Memories everywhere then. At the end of the afternoon of, eight, of February 3rd, feeling tired and lonely, I went out. The wind had been wrong all day. It leaned home howling for headlands and totems. Snow blew across ice, sand, my face, sky. Lake Erie was sealed against me. Lead white in that direction, so far as blending sound forever notwithstanding. From the opening of the field, the performance we wait for. Among the many persons I am, is wanderer to come to the secret place where waits the discovery that moves the heart. Most of the summer homes are built too close together. They have thin walls and very little character. That day I walked farther than usual, ignored several this beach is private keep off signs, went around a spit of land, crossed a frozen stream, and suddenly 
came upon a group of old Victorian houses sheltered and surrounded by bare, tall trees. Four by bare, tall trees and what in June will be a large sloping lawn. Four houses enfolding, estranged, familiar. They faced Lake Erie but looked in on each other. I thought generations of a happy family would gather there each summer, native to a time and place in a foreign story on the side where good was. Those houses were charged with peace. Only weather brought up outermost troubling. A swing hung from a branch of an oak tree. The swing tossed up and down in the north wind's confusion as if a child, he, she, it, swung anciently here in worlds I couldn't see. Perilous the feel of truly no direction, through over, up under. This is from Groundwork 2, <clears throat> You Muses. Poetry must go back to whose orders. Unaccountable as we go out across opening distance to restore the magic names we swear to be keepers. I instantly thought of Robert Duncan. The child I was before the war can never find her place in history. What was far is suddenly here. She, not I, called for love's sake. Quick, quick, come look. I decided to walk back and write him a letter just to connect. I wanted to tell him I had discovered a magic place just like a paste up by Jess. I felt as though they both already knew it. I wrote the words in my head as I went along. Shortly after I got home, the phone rang and it was Bob Bertoff to tell me that Robert had died quite suddenly that morning. Since February 3rd, I have wondered if Robert's spirit stopped on its way to wherever it is we go. Just for an instant, at this old summer colony, northeast on the Canadian side of Lake Erie, to help my foreignness then. Because he was a kind, generous, mothering man. Because he is my precursor father from groundwork one before the war circulations of the song in each house he has a different name in each he is expected again and I'd like to close by reading the last section <clears throat> uh, from the performance we wait for which is from the opening of the field. <clears throat> Among the many persons I am is wanderer to come to the secret place where waits the discovery that moves the heart. I rose in a rage last night, potent to melt all the areas of my dream. But the eyes of my beloved met mine, restoring the boundaries of one me. O oh, night book, among your pages is there a chapter called Many in One, 
or are you the old deceiver that shows us the fate with many branches? These things I would record, the gift of flight, where I am returned to the element of air, a creature of substance without weight or having weight, solitary skilled denizen of my own nature. One of my persons is called child of the wind loved that bends the oak. O book out of troubled waters written, scattered over your surfaces I have seen the notes of stars reflected. These things I would record. The drift of sand at the edge of the sea's eternal roar where my dry hands, impetuous for sound, unlock from keys inventions from inventions of the world's music upon a breaking harpsichord. Have you not heard him? He whose eyes are withheld from tears. Robert Duncan on the 12th of September, 1943, May 21st birthday and the day I arrived in New York and when, as it turned out, I moved here. During the four previous years, I had been at the University of Chicago, mainly studying philosophy and poetics. I lived on the south side near the university and my parents lived on the north side across the street from the Lincoln Park Zoo. But even though we were separated by half of Chicago, they still managed to keep me under their thumb. <laughs> I had long had all I could take of that. Also, the young woman with whom I'd been keeping company at the university was moving back to New York at that time to live with her mother and sisters. The two strands came together in September 1943. I came to New York on what was ostensibly a visit, but it is notable that I sent ahead of me at least 10 cartons of books. <laughs> <laughs> My friend met me at the bus, and immediately after greeting me, she said, Charles Wallace is living in the village now on Bedford Street. Let's check your things and visit him now. Charles Glenn Wallace was a poet and translator who had worked for a number of years at St. John's College in Annapolis, Maryland, the so-called Great Book School. He had translated many of the Greek, Latin, and Italian texts that were used in the courses there. In early 1942, Several former St. John students, one of whom I'd known previously, moved to the University of Chicago. My girlfriend was among them. Although St. John's didn't admit women students at that time, she and her family had lived near the college, and she had studied ex officio with several of the St. John's teachers and was friendly with many of the students and other faculty members, including Charles Glenn Wallace. Charles was an immense favorite with all the St. Johnnies who'd come to Chicago, and I'd heard a lot about him from them, so it was natural that my friend should want me to meet him as soon as possible. We checked my bags at the bus station, and after Betty had phoned ahead, we went to Charles's apartment on Bedford Street. There we found that there were two people staying temporarily with Charles, 
These turned out to be Robert Duncan and his wife at that time, the painter Marjorie McKee, a former student of Hans Hoffmann. Though I remember that I was gratified to meet Charles, about whom I had heard so much from my St. Johnny friends, all I remember vividly is Robert. I'd never met anyone quite like him. I think he was the most ebullient and voluble person I'd ever met, and this is saying a, a lot. <laughs> because uh, I had known many ebullient and voluble people at and near the University of Chicago. In retrospect, I've sometimes thought that Robert had decided to put on a show for the Hicks from Chicago. But this is probably not the case. I think he was just being himself. He talked continuously and at high speed, often reading from his journals, though not, as I remember, from his poetry, and telling many jokes, several of which ended explosively, and few of which I understood. I was both shocked and fascinated. I was especially shocked by some of the things he wrote, uh, he read from his journals. Although I've rem remembered other items in the past, the only one that comes to mind now is his reading that Robert Frost is a fairy baiter. This especially shocked me because I thought then that poets were above such petty prejudices. <laughs> this was certainly true among the poets and intellectuals I knew at Chicago. None of the gays seemed closeted there, and gay and straight mingled amicably. Many sexual lifestyles flourished pretty openly among the intellectuals, writers, and artists. Only real sourpusses made anti-gay remarks. <laughs> and usually they did so when drunk and were generally put down for it. I was unprepared for a world where an outstanding poet did so without even being drunk. I think I thought that Robert was making it up, but since then I've heard, I've learned that this was literally true. Altogether, I was astonished by Robert that day at Charles's, but I had no way of knowing that this was the beginning of a lifelong friendship. I met him again a few months later. Charles and I had become good friends, and his mother, the poet Eleanor Glenn Wallace, had begun publishing my poetry in her Baltimore magazine, Contemporary Poetry. Occasionally, I visited him on East 29th Street, and on one of these occasions, he suggested we go to visit Robert and Marjorie, who were living in a loft in, I think, Chelsea. While we were there, I first heard Robert read one of his poems, a long, rhapsodic work about his mother that seemed surrealist to me then, but may not have been. <laughs> Several months passed, during which I saw little of Charles and nothing of Robert. One day, in the spring of 1944, I met Robert on a street in the village, and he told me the terrible news that Charles had died in a fall from a window during a party in the South Village. By July of 1944, the young woman for whom, at least in part, I'd moved to New York, had ended her relationship with me and married the violinist she'd known at St. John's. <laughs> I'd met a young woman who'd been a friend of mine at New Trier High School in Winnetka, Illinois, and she introduced me to one of her closest friends, a woman somewhat older than me who was a painter. We began living together, and it turned out that she and Robert had been close friends for a number of years, both in New York and Woodstock. In fact, it turned out her husband and Robert's wife had gotten together, which was how she happened to be living alone <laughs> in a loft studio on the top floor of a small, no longer extant apartment building on West 10th Street near Bleecker. 
In the course of things, I was named correspondent in her husband's divorce suit against her, <laughs> which he didn't contest. <laughs> Robert came to visit me fairly, uh, Robert came to visit us fairly often, sometimes reading new poems. One time he read from what I think later became Faust Foutu. As I remember it then, uh, remember it, it then had a complicated plot involving, among other people, Paul Goodman and Paul Cadmus, the painter. Its choruses were very openly sexual in their language and content, and Robert chanted them with great delight at the top of his voice. I was afraid that our rather proper downstairs neighbors would complain or even call the police, but fortunately nothing like that ensued. Toward the end of 1945, a pacifist friend introduced me to a pacifist anarchist group that was publishing a magazine then called Why. Later it was called Resistance. I soon joined the editorial group and usually <laughs> attended their discussion groups on Saturday afternoons at the loft of a Spanish anarchist paper on Broadway near 12th Street. After my friend and I moved to Avenue C in December 1945, I most often met Robert at the anarchist meetings. Among the friends to whom he introduced me was the late Holly Cantine, who ran the pacifist anarchist magazine Retort in Bearsville, New York, near Woodstock, to which I later contributed poetry and articles. Holly and I became close friends, and I house-set his big log cabin in Bearsville a couple of winters when he went on vacations to Cuba. Besides taking care of his goats and chickens, I answered the retort mail and wrote reviews of the records that arrived while I was there. In the early 40s, before I came to New York, there had been an artists and writers community on the Maverick Road, just outside of Woodstock, which included, as Robert uh, Berthold mentioned, which included, among others, Robert, Anais Nien, and Kenneth Patchen. It was there that the woman with whom I later lived in the village became a close friend of Robert. Later, in 1948, I spent a summer on the Maverick in a tiny hut known as the Carpenter Shop. While living in Woodstock, Robert had helped James Peter Cooney publish the Laurentian magazine, The Phoenix, which I first saw in Chicago in the late 30s, and in which I then first saw poetry by Robert, signed Robert Sims. Uh, he also published a few magazines of his own there, one with the poet Sanders Russell and one of which was called Ritual. I think uh, another was called The Experimental Review. Sometime in the later 40s, Robert published a very uncloseted article about being gay in Dwight McDonald's magazine Politics. As a result, the then editor of the Kenyan Review, John Crow Ransom, sent back to Robert his poem, The African Princess, which had been accepted for publication and was already in galley troops, saying that after reading what Ransom called Robert's courageous article in politics. <laughs> he realized that the poem was an, uh, overt, an advertisement of overt uh, homosexuality, and as such could find no place in the Kenyan Review. The <laughs> Review could, wrote Ransom, publish articles about homosexuality adversely affected the lives of poets such as Hart <laughs> Crane, but could not publish such an open display of it as he realized that poem must be. This was especially unfortunate, not only because of Ransom's shocking behavior, but even more because it was Robert's first breakthrough into a more established literary context. Sometime later, uh, probably in 1946, Robert and I crashed 
a reading by William Carlos Williams of the 92nd Street YMHA. The person then running the readings, whom I knew slightly, was very much put out because he said the cost of our admissions would come out of his own pocket, which I doubted very much. <laughs> As a result, I corresponded a little with Williams, and among other things, I asked how Ezra Pound, recently incarcerated in St. Elizabeth's Hospital in Washington, was doing. Soon afterwards, I received a letter from Pound himself telling me, you might go look at H. Creekmore, New Directions, 500 Fifth Avenue, and that, yes, I am allowed to receive letters. Thereafter, I corresponded with Pound until April 1955, when he blew up at me after I had pu pushed him too hard on the Jewish question, <laughs> something I'd hitherto avoided in our correspondence, since I'd preferred not to push on what I took to be Pound's paranoia. I don't remember what changed my mind about this in 1955, <laughs> but it ended our correspondence. <laughs> I don't know to what extent, if any, Robert, possible you can tell us, Robert corresponded with Williams or Pound, but our joint crashing of that reading led to that long correspondence with Pound, whose work I first discovered in 1938 while I was in high school, and which then led me to the rest of modernist poetry. I also don't know when Robert moved to San Francisco. A number of my fellow editors of the Anarchist magazine, by then called Resistance, moved out there in 1948, and I rather think Robert moved there then or not long afterwards. After he moved there, we corresponded only sporadically, but I often read his poetry and followed its development. We met a few times when he visited New York. After 1975, when I began doing readings and performances in San Francisco, we met at them from time to time. I last saw him in San Francisco in June 1984, when I did a three-day residency at New Langton Arts, including a talk, a performance, and a poetry reading. By then, Robert was very ill, and I was surprised and both alarmed and pleased that he came to my poetry reading and stayed nearly to the end. A number of people were surprised that he came there at all, not only because of his illness, but because not long before, Robert had had an acrimonious public controversy about Louis Zukovsky's poetry with the organizer of that year's New Langton Arts residencies, Barrett Watton. I was very much moved that Robert disregarded not only his illness, but also that controversy with Barry to come to my reading. During the break, he and I mainly talked about our anarchist friends from New York, who are now living in San Francisco and Berkeley. But he was a completely changed person. He talked very quietly. His extreme ebullience and volubility were gone, and I missed them terribly. He left not long before the end of the reading, and I never saw him again. Our last contact was by phone when he was visiting New York. <clears throat> I don't remember whether it was in 1985 or 86. George and Susan Quasha had been taking him in a wheelchair to museums, but I missed seeing him. Just before he left New York, I learned where he was staying and called him up at his hotel, and that was the last time we talked together. I'd like to end with a relatively early poem of Robert's, starting from a subject close to both of us, the Watts Towers in Los Angeles, built by Simon Rodilla or Rodilla. I must have first heard of them in 1959, around the time when Robert wrote this poem, when, on a park bench in Staten Island, 
I found a page of a newspaper with a picture of the towers and an article about their being condemned. As it turned out, they were saved through uh, the devoted activity of a young engineer. I first saw the towers 10 years later in 1969 when I spent a summer at Information International in Los Angeles writing computer-aided poetry on a programmable film reader for the Los Angeles County Museum's Art and Technology Project. I took an album full of photos of the towers at the time. Then, in 1986, I met John Outerbridge, the present curator of the towers, at a Maori Artists and Writers Conference in New Zealand, at which he presented a history of the towers and a film about them made by the engineer who helped save them, which included actually sections in which Simon Rudia himself spoke about them. This was a great thrill to me to see this. On my way back to New York from New Zealand in June 1986, I stayed a few days in Los Angeles with Jed Rasselet, and we visited John Alderbridge and the towers together. They were even more wonderful then than I remembered them from 1969. Robert's poem was published in Roots and Branches in 1964. Nel mezzo del cammin di nostra vita, at 42, Simon Rodil, tile setter, to do something big for America, began the Watts Towers. This year, 1959, the officials of which city, having initiated condemnation hearings against which masterpiece. Three spires, rising 104 feet, bejeweled with glass, shells, fragments of tile, scavenged from the city dump, from sea rack, taller than the Holy Roman Catholic Church steeples, and moreover, inspired, built up from bits of beauty, sorted out 33 years of it, the great mitered structure rising out of squalid suburbs where the mind is beaten back to the traffic, ground down to the drugstore, the mean regular houses straggling out of downtown sections of imagination defeated. <coughs> They're taller than the church, she told us proudly. Art dedicated to itself. The cathedral at Palma, too, soared above church doctrine with Art Nouveau windows in Baldachin by Gaudi, gathered its children under one roof of the imagination. The poem, the poet, Charles Olson writes, cannot afford to traffic in any other sign than his one, his self, he says, the man or woman he is. Who? Rudia at 81 is through work. Whatever man or woman he is, he is a tower, three towers, a trinity uprised by himself. Otherwise, God does rush in. Finished. They are only his own composed forms, and each one the issue of the time, of the moment of its creation. Not any ultimate except what he in his heat and that instance in its solidity yield. Like the Tower of Jewels at the San Francisco Panama Pacific Exposition in 1915, this phantom kingdom to symbolize man's highest aims, glittering but an original, accretion of disregarded splendors, 
resurrected against the rules, having in this its personal joke, its genius, misfitting, the expected mediocre, an ecstasy of broken bottles and colored dishes thrown up against whatever piety, city ordinance, plans, risking height. A fairy citadel, a fabulous construction out of Christianity where Morgan Le Fay carries the king to her enchanted isle. All glass beads of many colors and rickety towers, concrete gardens that imitate magnificence. Art, Burkhout writes, the most arrogant traitor of all, putting eyes and ears in place of profounder worship, substituting figures for feeling. The rounds contain crowns. The increases climb by bridges. The whole plan to occupy life and allow for death. A skeletal remain as glory, a raised image, scepter, spectral island, most arrogant, to do something big for America, Rudia. Here, 